Hello, hello. Good afternoon. Who are you? <laughs> I am Chris. My name is Chris Richard. Uh, yeah, I'm not your normal co-host. Hello, how are you? So today, uh, Matt is at uh, Kruger National Park, sleeping with lions and elephants and such. So we have another different format this week. The reason why I've invited Chris over is because Bygro Repeat is actually modeled after his podcast, which is called Makers.dev. Do you want to just give a 10-second <laughs> description of what Makers.dev is? Yeah, so Makers.dev is a podcast by uh, me and Christian Jenko, and uh, we met each other at MicroConf. We uh, have both done sassy kind of things. We were calling each other kind of once every month or so during COVID, and we're like, we should record these as a podcast. <laughs> and so we did. And so that's how that got started. I don't think I've shared this, but the origins story of uh i grow repeat is that when you started makers.dev this is like probably a little bit over a year ago i started listening became a, a big fan um just love every minute of it and i also met christian at uh microconf and i met you at microconf and i gave him a call telling him how, how excited i am about his podcast and said oh i think i want to you know record a podcast at some point as well or start a podcast at some point and he gave me the final kick in the butt. <laughs> so yeah, that was the origin uh, story. And I want to bring you on because on Twitter, you shared publicly about selling an app that you've created on MicroAcquire. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. So yeah, I just finished selling a SaaS called Meeting Place on MicroAcquire. And uh, Meeting Place is kind of like a meetup alternative. Yeah, the story is, so this was late 2019. I had a meetup group in town called React Indie. So I live in Indianapolis. And uh, meetup was going to do this thing, a pricing test, not for other groups, where they're going to charge $2 just for people to RSVP, even to free events. But then they were keeping all that money and not giving it to the group organizers. So me and my co-organizer were like, well, that stinks. <laughs> like that, We don't want that for our, you know, we don't want people to have to pay to come to our free event. So we, I just started an alternative. And this was right before COVID. I worked on it really solid for a few months. And then COVID hit and like people weren't doing events anymore. And so it kind of floundered for a little bit. I switched to remote events on there. And then I sort of got involved in a few other things. And so I kind of lost steam on it. And so I decided to sell it recently. And yeah, I just completed the sale. Everything went super smoothly. And I think the new developer is going to sort of pick up where I left off. So yeah, uh, all around pretty positive experience. Meeting Place was started in 2020. Uh, late 2019 yeah late 2019 so as of recording it's march 2022 so just a little over two years did you have any revenue yeah so there were free free and paid groups like i made it free up to 100 members uh, with the idea that larger groups you would pay for it and people just starting out could be free if i had to do it again i probably wouldn't do freemium from the beginning like it was good but it was also like a lot of support burden you know for people who are never going to pay you and so as a solo dev, maybe I wouldn't do that again. But yeah, it was it was great. By the end, I had something like five or six hundred groups total. Most of those were free, obviously. But yeah, they had, had revenue. What's the approximate revenue MRR? Because that's how it seems like micro acquire or the marketplace values these SaaS businesses, right? It was under a thousand dollars. I don't remember exact numbers, but because of that, I didn't really sell for a revenue multiplier. Like if I sold for a revenue multiplier, it'd be a really low price. <laughs> it's not like a big revenue multiplier kind of sale. I mostly sold the technology. And a bunch of the free groups on there who, you know, hopefully like this new developer is probably going to add more features that, you know, entice them to sign up for a paid plan. Because, you know, like 500 
free groups, you know, that's not nothing. So he can convert some of those. But yeah, it wasn't really a revenue multiplier kind of sale. It was more of a like a technology asset sale. Mm, that's interesting because I think you're the first person that I talked to that didn't sell on a revenue multiplier. So I think we can dig into some like really interesting in terms of, you know, negotiations and talking to potential buyers. But let's go back. So you started in late 2019 um, meeting place and then got some revenue, a little less than a thousand. It was a lot less. I don't remember what it was, but it was a, it was a few hundred, we'll say. Yeah, right, 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 right. What was your expectation going in when you decided that you want to sell? So this was early 2022 that you decided that you want to sell. Yeah, I found like I was doing too many things. So I, I guess I didn't really go into an overview of what all I do. So I have another SaaS I'm starting. I have, I'm doing a part-time master's program with uh, in AI, like machine learning stuff. I do video courses and I do some consulting and some other stuff too. I had a lot going on and Meeting Place is the kind of app that really like needs full-time focus, you know, like uh, in order to grow very well. And so I found I just didn't have the time to devote to it that I needed to. So I was really just looking to find a good landing spot for it and get it kind of off my plate so that I could focus on other things. Yeah. And when you made that decision, did you look at other places outside of microacquire? Was was that the one that you knew that you were going to end it with? Yeah. So I know about a few of them, you know, FE International and uh, the others, but it since it wasn't like a huge revenue multiplying kind of play, I just went with microacquire because that's Christian suggested I look at microacquire. I had already known about them, but Christian suggested it. And I was like, okay, I'll take a look. And I sort of filled out a profile and then I was like, okay, I'll put the details in. And before I knew it, like the profile was complete and it's like, do you want to push this to the, the marketplace? And I was like, sure, I guess. <laughs> and so <laughs> it kind of happened one evening and I just did it. And yeah, then I started getting inbound requests, you know, from buyers. So I don't want to say it was like a, like a fluke or like I like just sort of did it, but I kind of just sort of did it. Yeah. Interesting. It seems like their onboarding flow is working very well. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. It was good. So once you hit that button to go live with your listing, did you have an expectation of how long it's going to take for you to actually see the money in the bank? Like how many people were you expecting to talk to? Because, uh, you know, there could be a lot of tire kickers in a marketplace like that. Yeah. Yeah. I really had no idea. I have heard of sales taking a long time before, but I think most sales, you know, most sales you talk about much bigger numbers. And so within a week or so, I got maybe 10 or 15 buyers reach out. And, and yeah, a lot of people just sort of checking it out. But I talked seriously to two of them, ended up getting two offers and selecting one all within, I think, like a week. So, I mean, it helped that it was a kind of a lower dollar amount, you know, but yeah, it was it went much faster than I thought it would. I actually thought it was going to take longer. That is super fast. Like, <laughs> yeah, I would say my deal is probably in a similar scale. And my deal is considered like a super fast deal as well, because I was buying it from a company with 150 employees. Oh. And I think the app at that point was generating anything like where from like 1200 to 1500 maybe 1800 so within a month the money was wired so i think that's considered like really really fast but you are even faster how did you make it work was the buyer really easy to work with the buyer was just another developer who wanted to get started with an app but didn't want to build the initial version right and so i had done all the initial work plus i had some paying customers and a whole bunch of free customers. And I had a whole, I had a mailing list of another like 600 people or so who had shown interest who I just hadn't, you know, connected with yet. So like he was pretty eager to get going and wanted to move quickly. And so it helped that we both, you know, we had a few phone conversations and we clicked kind of well and both acted in good faith. Like there was 
not very many legal hurdles, basically. Like we responded to each other's emails like within hours usually. And uh, so we were able to, I feel like get a whole bunch of like work that would have taken several business days. We got done like in an afternoon just because we're both, you know, ready to move quickly. So uh, yeah, it helped to find the right buyer, I guess. Was this an all cash upfront deal? Like what was the deal structure? Yeah. So I got two offers. It was almost all cash upfront, but then like slow payout over two months just for like um, extra support. So I have a few calls, like one call a week or so, probably for the next two months to like get him up to speed with the app and explain, you know, things and uh, sort of be on the hook a little bit. If there's some difficult customer question, then he's emailed me a couple times asking, you know, like, what would I do and that kind of thing. So not heavy, but yeah, so mostly cash up front and then two months. The other deal, the one I didn't select was more like a payout over, it was like six months or 12 months or something like that, plus like an option for equity and stuff. It it became kind of confusing, which is kind of why I, w- I went with the cash deal. <laughs> so, yeah. So during that process, did you, because you have two competing offers, did you try to use that as leverage to negotiate with each other? I probably could have. Uh, and I didn't really, mostly because I had gotten to the point where I'd almost fully accepted the guy's offer, except for like pushing the button when the other offer really came through. I don't know. I probably could have gotten, you know, I don't know, maybe a few thousand more dollars out or something. But I, I guess I felt bad <laughs> because I had basically verbally agreed to the first guy's terms. And I was much happier with an all cash deal than a like a payout over time. I just accepted <laughs> the guy's offer. Yeah, I probably could have bid them against each other, though. If you were to do it again, would you try to time them so that <laughs> it was like that or you didn't really care? I was more worried about closing quickly than I was like if we were talking about, you know, like a million versus two million or something, then obviously I would have bid them against each other. But, you know, in the amount of scale we're talking, like it was much, much more important to me that I cut close quickly and with someone I was comfortable with and and that kind of stuff. So it was more important for me to maintain trust than it was to just get a few more thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because I also have a lot of that experience um, from, well, myself and as well as talking to others that at a smaller scale, you just want to get things going and moving forward. Well, actually, even I should correct myself. I think even for bigger deals, the speed of that transaction is also a highly competitive advantage. Like You can go below your competitor's bidding price if you are able to, you know, do things quickly, reply quickly. That's definitely a competitive advantage. Yeah. Speaking as a seller, like if anyone out there is looking to buy, yeah, definitely. Like the faster you reply, the more you make it clear, like you will close quickly and you won't be have much of a fuss, basically. Like the more you can show that, the higher your chances, I think, of winning the deal. Yeah. Right. So I just want to describe this process for people who have never done it, who are kind of looking from the outside in. So you listed on a day, you just wanted to complete your profile on microacquires. One thing led to another. It got you to list your app live. And then within a week, you got two serious offers from two people. And then it was the negotiation between you and the two different parties. How long was that? Do you remember? Maybe two days. Like it was really short. Oh, wow. Okay. So a week later, you have two buyers interested. Two days later, you've made your selection. And at that point, did you sign the purchase agreement? Which Was that just the uh, LOI? Yeah, at that point, it was just the LOI. That's the only kind of weird part in the microquire process was I clicked the button to sign the LOI. And then I was going to go back and tell the other person that I had accepted a, a different offer. But as soon as you sign an LOI and microquire, you can't message the old buyers anymore <laughs> like they because you're not supposed to be negotiating with them so I, I like couldn't go back and message the guy that i accepted a different offer 
And we ended up talking outside of MicroAcquire. Like he found my email and he's like, so what happened? And I was like, yeah, I can't message you anymore. So that was the only weird part. But yeah, it was just the LOI. And after the due diligence, basically, where the buyer could, like it can be anything they want, really. It's all, you know, even due diligence is negotiable. But for a small app like this, it was, he wanted to see some code samples. He wanted to see, like verify the Stripe revenue, wanted more details about the number of paying versus free customers and the number of support requests that come in per week. Those are a lot of the big one, the big things he wanted to see. Right. Yeah. And I always talk about with Matt as well. There's this interesting dynamic of these um, sort of power switches when you sign certain documents. So initially, the seller would receive, you know, all these interesting parties requests. But as soon as you sign LOI, all the leverage goes to the buyer because now you've locked up. So you can't even talk to any other parties. How long was that LOI for? Like how long did it apply for or how long did that process last? Yeah, if, if it didn't close within, is it 30 days? or It may have been only two weeks, but I think it may have been 30 days. So MicroAcquire has these like sort of default documents and I think he just used their document. So it's probably 30 days. So now <laughs> as a seller, I imagine you feel like, you know, you have to open up all these, uh, you know, Stripe accounts and dashboards, analytics. You give them maybe read access to your GitHub it seems like you become very vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, it did feel like that a little bit. He only asked for, he basically asked for a bunch of stuff in one document. So I basically took a bunch of screenshots of things, even code. Like if it was a bigger deal, well, I guess there's even third parties that will do like sort of independent code analysis, you know, uh, but he just wanted like screenshots of the code structure and then a few screenshots of code basically to make sure it wasn't a spaghetti mess, I think. <laughs> so yeah, he, he didn't even want like full read access or anything. So that made me feel a little better. Like, like I wasn't expecting him to take my code and run. But if you give someone full read access, then they could, right? <laughs> Again, I think because it's kind of a smaller deal and he was just a developer without, like, he didn't have a big legal team working on this, you know, deal. So it was pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you've signed the LOI. You've given this person access. How long did that process take? Um, I think it was... Maybe another week. I actually don't remember. It was only like a month ago and I don't remember. Um, I, th- I think it was maybe a week. So he had a few days to review it. I think we had a call for me to explain some things and then that was it. And then he sent over the purchase agreement. Right. That's the interesting part because now once you signed a purchase agreement, did you use an escrow service? Nope. Again, this is like part of it was us just acting in good faith, right? We were just like, you seem like a reasonable person. So we're going to go forward with this. We ended up kind of doing our own escrow this wasn't in the purchase agreement, which we could have put, but he was in Canada and I'm in the US. And so there were some limits about what is how much his bank would let him send um, unless he wanted to like pay a lot for a special kind of any. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, he ended up sending a little bit of money and then I ended up giving him access to a couple of things. And then he sent some more money and then I gave him some more access. And so it was like we were sort of trading money for access until everything was complete. And so it kind of worked out really well that way, actually. I'm also in Canada. And um, when I acquired uh, my app, so I had to do a wire and that was the moment when the seller would have maximum leverage because now once the wire is gone, it's gone. <laughs> I mean, if you want to take that money back, it will be, you have to go through sort of the legal route. And that's kind of where the interesting dynamics flows from the buyer to the seller and then back to the buyer. And that's why one of the tripping points for me when I did my deal was I needed to it to go through uh, an escrow. So we use escrow.com, which is, I mean, it doesn't have a really good, great experience, but we did this uh, something similar where there were stages that we put in 
and you can put in different prices. So you can break up the deal into, I don't know, like 50%, 20% of the, the funds. And they initially gave code and access to Stripe and the first tranche of money can go over or, or depending on like how you like to structure it. Um, there are ways to break it up so that as the buyer, that's when the seller has leverage too, because well, they can drag this on, right? For a long time. Yeah. And I think till this day, I still don't have the LinkedIn account login. Because I think somehow they they lost it and then someone um, had it and now that person is no longer with the company. So yeah, those are the, some of the things that you don't really hear about. It's a smaller thing, LinkedIn uh, login, but still, right? I would like to have like a really clean transfer. One of the hardest things that we dealt with was all the two-factor authentications on things. Did you have to deal with that? Because like they go to my personal phone. So I, w- I would have to like, I gave him access to the account, but then I was like, okay, you log in and then I'll tell you what the code is. And then you change two factor off. Is there like a better way to do that? Cause we, yeah. Uh, two factor off. So what I did was I, I had like three sessions where I had to sit down with them for an hour, an hour and a half. Okay. And then they would like kind of fumble around. They would go, oh, there's this account that you need, right? It's not a really good example or representation of a deal because they just want to get rid of this app. So they needed me to waive a whole bunch of things that normally would appear in a purchase agreement. Um, so they didn't allow me to do a ton of due diligence. So, but it was pretty messy. That part was messy. So we had to go back and forth. I sat down with them three times. There was like a eight hour time difference as well. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy way. So they have to disable the two-factor, all of the two-factor auth. Sometimes if, if that didn't happen, I would ask them, hey, what's the six-digit code, right? Yep. Okay, yeah, that's what we did, yeah. Yeah, so now when I acquired it, I don't know when I'm going to sell it, but I want to make sure that if I ever sell it, the next buyer, I can just give them like one single password in a password manager. So I created a vault in a password manager and put everything in there. Yeah, and hopefully it will be a smoother process when, if and when I decided to sell it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. The only thing I thought of was like, you could make a Google voice account maybe to get the, because some of the, oh some of, yeah, and like do a text messages because some of the things require two-factor auth. And so like Heroku, I think requires it. So yeah, that was the only way I could think to get around it. Right, right. Did they have to create any new accounts and then do the account transfer? Yeah, so one of the things I did kind of poorly was some of the things were, they, they were separate from my other, so I have, I don't know, three or four different projects like live and active. And so they were hooked up to accounts that were on those things. The hardest one to separate was AWS because I have other like even consulting projects on my AWS account and AWS doesn't allow you to transfer S3 buckets between accounts. So we actually had to do a full download and sync of the S3 bucket. So that was the trickiest one to do without any downtime to the app. The rest were relatively easy. Like it was mostly... I go into the thing and say, you know, this person's email is the new owner, basically. That was most of them. Well, yeah, for me, the AWS thing was okay because they literally just gave me the account as well. So, but I I guess in your case, you couldn't because you have other projects on your AWS account. So you can just give them, um, yeah, the the entire account. Hmm. I see. Yeah, which is also something, like he was cool about it, but technically, according to the purchase agreement, like I said, I I guess I don't know, but I think I signed up to just hand over accounts. And instead I was like, you have to download this bucket. And so like he was okay with it. But if I was going to do it again, I would probably make a brand new AWS account, transfer the objects myself, and then just hand over that account. That's probably how I would handle it. Yeah. 
But I mean, as a seller, sometimes your time is also uh, worth something as well. So especially for these smaller deals, if you spend, you know, anything significant, let's say 20 hours on it, that adds up sort of to the cost, right? (laughs) So everything is off your plate right now. And the new owner owns everything now. Yep. Yeah. Everything's been transferred for the next same month and a half or so. We have some, you know, communication that where I'm walking him through the code basically and helping him with some customer service requests. Yeah, but that's it. Do you have an agreement where after that period that he could hire you as a, cons- uh, I don't know, as a buy by the hour or or however? Yeah, he put the option in for another two months basically, but either of us can say no to that. So we get to two months and if he wants, he can extend it for another two months, but I can also say no to that. So this is probably the best stories that I've heard so far in terms of buying something and selling something that because usually there are way more headaches and difficulties in transferring negotiations, people for dropping stuff. Yeah, I was super smooth. I think I credit the buyer a lot. Like he, he's just like a kind of a cool dude. <laughs> and like we, we clicked well and, and got it done, you know? Yeah. Is it because the service is relatively simple? Like how many accounts did you transfer over? Did you have like Twitter and uh, Facebook pages and stuff like that? Yeah, so Twitter was the only social account. So yeah, Twitter, the service was on Heroku with S3, Honey Badger for error reporting, uh, SendGrid for emails. There were a few other. Oh, G Suite was kind of difficult as well. Like that was kind of a dance to transfer properly. I feel like I'm missing a couple, but those are the big ones. Yeah, so it was pretty simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost the entire app is on Heroku. So I could just give him the project on Heroku and that took care of, you know, 90% of the app. Oh, and GitHub, you know. Yeah, those. I think those are the best case uh, scenarios. I think, you, yeah, you've, this is pretty much as simple as it'll ever get. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're selling some themes or, you know, like a portfolio of um, eBooks with a website attached to it. Yeah. For SaaS, this is probably as simple as it, as it will ever get. So looking back, I, I think you mentioned a couple of things, but just to highlight it, looking back, if someone were to look to sell their SaaS app, uh, what's one piece of advice you would give them? Yeah, so everyone's looking for revenue. So Christian Jenko, my co-host, he's thinking, you know, does he want to sell his app or not? And I, basically, like, before you sell, if you have time, you know, for me, I just wanted to sort of get rid of it. But, you know, if you have time, do everything that, like, as soon as I started thinking about selling it, I made a list of things I would tell the new buyer to do, like, first, do all those things first. <laughs> That's what I would say. Like, if you can spend even a little time increasing the MRR of your app, with, you know, multiples being anywhere from like three to like, you know, 10, <laughs> depending on the size of your app, increasing MRR, even just a little bit is like huge. And if you can show that graph being up into the right, even for just a couple of months, then that'll really pique buyer's interests. So if you're looking for higher multiples, do whatever you can to increase MRR, even just for a couple of months. From the transferring side, the more you can keep things separate, <laughs> the better, especially like everything else is separable, but in Stripe, especially like from the beginning, my Stripe was like, I keep all my projects separate. And that's very important. So make sure your Stripe account at least is separated from everything else. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, otherwise, like, try to pick a good buyer. <laughs> I just don't know what else to say. Yeah. Yeah. So my co-host Matt is going through uh, that process right now, but it's a little different. He's selling a WordPress uh, plugin, so the transfer process is probably easier. Multiples lower. Yeah, it's a different kind of a different game. That is really good advice because if you look at my password manager right now, I have like so many AWS accounts and because everything has its own, you know, even the email, right? So I'll create a new email for for an app and then the entire stack. It's as if I'm a new person that don't have access to the other AWS accounts, 
G Suite, everything is, yeah. Even Heroku, I have like, I think three or four accounts right now, just because I want to, to separate the domains. This concludes part one of the interview with Chris. If you are interested in more content, we have a bonus episode coming where Chris talks about the next SaaS idea he has been working on, how he thinks about applying machine learning to a SaaS business, and more. So make sure you subscribe to not miss it. The show notes of this episode can be found on buygrowrepeat.com. I am Johnny Tong on Twitter, and this episode is edited by Rory Yonkukau, and you can find his Instagram at Radio Rory. See you next week.